The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Monday was a long day for the UCAP gang as we all made our way home from Oshkosh. We're still catching up on our sleep and waiting through the email, but we wouldn't miss our regular Thursday morning of online hangar flying. We share a few more memories of Oshkosh 2007, try to understand the tragedy of a helicopter midair, and return to the debate of the benefits of the upcoming ADSB system. All this and more in Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 41, Home Again. I think the FAA is simply trying to offload its cost and its responsibilities and its controller workload onto uh, airborne aircraft. I, I don't like the idea that they're going to pawn off operation of the system to private industry for profit. Should, should we start this this puppy? You mean we uh, haven't started already? We haven't started already. Well, we might have. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but I haven't pushed the button yet, so that's the key here. All right. Uh, oh. All right. All right. Oh wow! There's the button. <laughs> I heard the button. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode number forty-one of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're all still recovering from uh, from our adventure the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Catching up on our sleep and uh, and uh, all sorts of fun things. Uh, so I, mean, I guess we're just going to jump into this thing, huh? What with me? With me, good morning. With me, good. With me this morning in the virtual hangar is. Uh, I'm not sure who was snoring there. Maybe it was Jeb. Jeb Burnside. Not, it was not me. Uh, I, I I don't snore on air. I see. Talking to us from uh, back home in Springfield, Virginia. Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing editor to AvWeb Biz. Good morning, Jeb. Morning, Jack. Uh, thank you for that intro, and uh, it's just good to be home yeah. after uh, two weeks on the road to Oshkosh. Yep. And also with us this morning is Dave Higdon. Dave is uh, is back home in Wichita, Kansas. Dave is an aviation photographer, senior editor of Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Apparently, it was you snoring, huh? <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> that, I, I figured it, that or it was the NSA guy listening in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm <clears throat> glad to hear that Jeb doesn't snore on the air, unlike unlike the sound you get over the noise-canceling headsets in the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on to that subject, I am Jack Hodgson. I am Jack Hodgson up here in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. So, speaking of uh, of the noise-canceling headsets, so uh, no Jack H like our Jack H. So, how was your uh, how was the flight home from? Uh, you guys flew together from uh, from Oshkosh uh, by yes. way of Wichita. We dropped off Dave and then 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 uh, headed east for. We came via Air Debonair. That's right. Debonair. That's right. That's right. So how it was, was the... a long. It was a long day from Wa. Yeah. Uh, oh I yeah. I, I uh, it was four hours on the tack uh, to get from Oshkosh to Wichita. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then still had another uh, six plus hours of flying time. Right. Home. Not not to call attention to the hugeness of the favor that you do for Dave here, but the flight from Oshkosh to Wichita is longer than if you just flew home, right? Oh, very much. Yeah. And then yeah, you got to go from Wichita back to back yeah, to home. I, so. and 
not yeah exactly um so i'm hoping that dave gave I, you that six pack of beer he did uh we we've we have alternate arrangements made oh, i see okay <laughs> but, uh, well um, it's 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 shorter from manassas i mean from wichita to oshkosh than it is from manassas to oshkosh but then when you you know square that triangle instead of right. using the uh uh, what is that? The isosceles? I should have my scarecrow hat on. The hypotenuse. That's right. There you go. Uh, and uh, then, then it's definitely a longer trip by yeah. what an hour and a half. Yeah, it's, two it's, hours. Well, it's it's more like three and a half to four, depending on the winds, from Manassas directly to Oshkosh, and that that includes going over the lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a significant significantly longer day let's yeah. put it that way yeah so other than being and long we, we we do appreciate it and it's so much oh, fun keeping jeb company on that leg and, and it, it, i wouldn't do it for too many other people let's go. put it that way. uh so other than being too long other, how was the flight? other male people <laughs> <laughs> glad you cleared that up there you go okay <laughs> Uh, uh, the flight flight back had just a little bit of weather to dice with when we got inside uh, 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 about 100 miles from Wichita. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeb had to do a little slice and dice around uh, what, you know, wasn't going to be tragically deadly dangerous or anything like that, but was definitely going to be uh, a washing machine cycle uncomfortable and wet. Yeah. Now I, I I understand there was something notable notable about the landing at Dead Cow. Oh man. <laughs> uh, I I personally didn't spot the runway until uh um uh, well let's put it what we were kinda high and hot. Uh-huh. We were kinda high we were kinda high and hot. Uh before you know, a, a stole, stole airplane doesn't have anything on the approach angle that Jeb managed to squeeze out of Debbie uh, to get down over the wires and beyond the, the uh, uh, display threshold mark at Dead Cow International uh, and still have a comfortable rollout room. Uh, it was a pretty impressive performance. Uh, you know, the, the, the boy definitely has a future in aviation. <laughs> He's put a couple hours on that airplane. He ought to know how to fly it by now. Oh, yeah. 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 There wasn't anything conventional or standard about that approach. uh Uh, But that's, you know, we we were kind of where ATC had last put us. And, uh, you know, the cloud layer was uh, broken to scattered, and uh, we were just underneath it. And Jeb's not real familiar with that neck of the woods. Uh, And, uh, you know, I picked the airplane port out. Uh, You see the airport? Yeah, I got the airport. Where is the airport? Well, here's the description. He picked it out right away and it's kind of like, ooh. Uh, I think I said said something more colorful. A little more (laughs) colorful, but the... uh, the uh, the you know the 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 net result of that ooh, catalyst was uh, uh, a pretty good descent rate. I saw fifteen hundred feet a minute yeah. down on uh, on on Jeb's vertical speed indicator at times. Uh, a really nicely done slip uh, that he kicked out at about three hundred four hundred feet off the runway. Cleared the wires. He still got a really good descent rate and um, carrying a little airspeed and then just flared it back to where it kind of went and a one, two, three, down. Uh, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, the, st- the struts didn't compress until we were about halfway down the runway. Right, right. Yeah. Now, now I understand that the uh, that the departure from Dead Cow was kind of enervating as well. Is that something uh, we want to talk about? Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Which, have, which, you ever read, have you ever read? Have you ever read the dog tag stuck on the top of a utility pole? <laughs> I, I would simply refer uh, our listeners to Ernest Gann's um, "Fate Is the Hunter," yeah. uh, which is classic aviation books of all time, and and just a real good general read all the way around. But if he describes he describes um, later in the book um, it departing from. An airport um, in India, and narrowly missing the Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have been one that stuck out in the record books, wouldn't it? Right. They, they got to their destination and discovered that either through a math error or simply um, um, loading the airplane twice or something like that, they were like twenty thousand pounds over growth. <laughs> Uh, yeah. You guys, I, I, of course, were not overgrowth. Of course not. We no, were not. We were not overgrowth. But it was a it was a hot day, and it's it a was short a short field. It's a short strip, and, and uh, we uh, got out of there. We had margin, um, but uh, it was it was narrow. Uh huh. Let's put it this way: the guys back at the hangar at Dead Cow, the Leprechaun and his gangs, were selling popcorn and handing out seats. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the little tag on the top of utility poles, I found out what it says. Uh-huh. It says, "If you can read this tag, you're flying yeah. too low." <laughs> so, did you guys go? I'm curious. This Jeb, did you? Uh, were you in the system all the way back to Manassas? Manassas? Because More or less. Flight, Flight Aware shows a break. Yeah, it does. Uh, and I was thinking, yeah, right. what was that all about? Gee, well, was this, that near St. Louis? No, it was near Cincinnati. Oh, no. Yeah, wow. say, I was just uh, coming out of Wichita. I got a vector. Uh, of course, I was southbound coming out of uh, Westport, Dead Cow. Um, and uh, there was a couple of traffic issues. There was a weather issue, and there was a MOA uh, issue. So I was a little bit south of the Great Circle from Wichita to Manassas, and that kind of kept me in the gray area with St. Louis. They didn't try to vector me um, or uh, send me to Cape Girardeau or some nonsense. Well, like I that. think at eleven thousand feet, you were outside their territory. There, I was. I talked to St. Louis. Uh, really, I, two or three controllers. Uh, uh, with St. Louis, and I was just itching, you know, for uh, uh, for them to give me. Well, we got a re- reroute for you. And I said, well, you know, I don't think so. But uh, when I got to Cincinnati, the the thought clickened, as they say, and um, they they <laughs> wanted, <laughs> yeah, they wanted to reroute me. <laughs> yeah, that's they, better they than wanted, the thick plotting. Yeah, they wanted to reroute me or give me a different altitude, and I was given like. Um, See, I was at eleven, so I was either given seven thousand or uh, thirteen thousand, and you know I, I was kind of happy where I was. I, you know, the, the fuel flow was just right. I had two hours of fuel uh, projected on my arrival at, at Manassas, and I I told the controller, he says, you know, this was a center controller before they even handed me over to Cincinnati. So you know, I really don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and well, that's that's what Cincinnati wants to do. You're you're you're. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. So what we're going to do is either cancel IFR or we're going to go VFR on top. And uh, she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I prefer VFR on top. And she says, well, are you VFR? And I'm like, I look around and there's not a cloud for 100 miles. I said, yeah, I can call this VFR. <laughs> uh, and so she said, all right, clear to maintain VFR on top at 11.5, uh, climb and maintain 11.5, and and that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And um, 
uh, I'm, I, could, I could almost hear the exasperation in Cincinnati's voice, but, you know, that's, that's legal, it's, it's appropriate, um, and uh, it resolves actually their problem and my problem. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, the, the punchline is um, I didn't see a single piece of traffic uh, when I was in Cincinnati's airspace. Now, first of all, I was well above their Bravo. Um, the, their Bravo tops out at 10, and I was at 11.5. I would have been above their Bravo at 11. Well, you, you should have been well south of their Bravo. I was I was south of their Bravo, which just adds to the frustration and yeah. uh, uh, nonsense, nonsensical nature of all of this. But um, uh, I think that was called as traffic to one flight, and I never saw the guy. Um, so... The, the, these reroutes um, around Class Bravo, like uh, like Cincinnati, like Dave and I have experienced in St. Louis, like I experience regularly in Charlotte, um, are are just convenience things for the controllers um, to to reduce their workload, mainly at the expense of the flip. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's something that I uh, have have consistently tried to uh, uh, work around or work uh, work out alternatives with ATC on. Well, I'm glad you guys made it home safely. Obviously, I did too. You know, and but my situation was much different than yours. Oh, oh yeah. Just to give you, just to give uh, uh, listeners an idea of the uh, of how long it took you to get home. You guys departed uh, uh, Whitman Field at what was it? It must have been around. It was around 10.15. or something like that. Um, I went and got on my Midwest Airlines flight at 5.30 that afternoon. Uh, Jeb and I both arrived at our respective homes at approximately the same time later that night. So, uh, But so. you didn't get to see scenic Wichita. That's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, you didn't get to see Wichita at all. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, didn't get to visit Dead Cow International uh-huh. twice. Didn't, didn't get to do your carrier landing there. Here. Right. And, <laughs> uh, I, I think the in-flight entertainment was probably worse on your flight. Also. Yeah, well, yeah. And uh, So anyways, good. Glad we all made yeah. it home. So just to, just to kind of sum things up here, let's see. Now we I, I sat down this morning, did a quick little bit of uh, looking at the show notes, and realized that we have done four episodes of the podcast in the past two weeks, uh, and uh, it's been quite a week for the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. What's that, Jeb? money yeah i know but we're gonna we're gonna just kind of fall back now and do just one episode <laughs> a week for a while and uh but we do want to one last time not one last time but once again uh throw out uh, some thanks to uh, our new friends uh at ea radio farid guillot and jim gray and steve boos uh and the whole staff of ea radio who are just wonderful hosts to us and and worked remarkably hard to solve problems to um that that were sort of a result of us doing our our thing out there and uh and man i, I just had a blast we all had a blast doing that. If, if listeners, if you haven't listened to episode number forty of Uncontrolled Airspace, you need to go find it and listen to it. I really believe that it may well be the best episode we've ever done. It's just so much fun to listen to. Certainly had the best background modulation of anything yeah, we've ever you know, done. And we had great guests, and we were looking at airplanes, and we were describing all these airplanes, and it has great background sound. It was and, a bright and sunny day. And, and the, a quick shout-out and, and big thanks to uh, my colleague on AirVenture today, my fellow photographer, Phil Weston. Yep. For uh, uh, supplying some uh, images, uh, you know, subjects of which are debatable, but it's pictures of us uh, <laughs> right. sitting out there on the deck, and uh-huh. uh, Phil did as usual a fabulous job of framing us up and yeah, and, and you know portraying us in our natural environment with our mouths yeah. open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
the technical quality and the composition are just top notch. The subject matter leaves a little bit to be desired, but uh, that's not Phil's. Yeah, but I, I hear he started out his career in wild animal photography, so uh, uh, maybe that come full circle. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so thanks to everyone. Um, and uh, my favorite line, one of my favorite lines maybe in episode 40 was when Dave suddenly realized that there was skywriting going on overhead. And it's just like, there's skywriting going on. It's just like the ultimate capper for all the things, aviation, that were going on around us. This is a great episode. I know I'm going to listen to it a couple times to get me through the winter when I'm just kind of hankering to go back to Oshkosh. So uh, thanks it's to everybody out it. It did seem to go by so fast. The week did, yeah. The week did. It absolutely did. Um, and it was quite a week. Um, EAAs announced their attendance figures. Um, it apparently was the busiest ever, up 3% from last year. Um, EAA is saying that there were, ten, in fact, 10,000 airplanes visited the field. Uh, about 2,600 of those were show planes, uh, uh, home belts and vintage and warbirds and so forth out there on the flight line. Um, uh, there were about s- almost 800 commercial exhibitors and more than 38,000 campers. So it was a big gathering, and we had a lot of fun out there. Um, what else? Uh, do you guys have any last thoughts before we move on to some other aviation-related things? Uh, any last well, thoughts since, about since, AirVenture? Since we're talking about Oshkosh, let's, uh, let, me, let me put this in uh, right now so it's, we're not coming back to it later. But uh, after uh, getting home and, and starting to decompress and looking at the picture of my bag, part of my bags on the website, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> thanks, Jack. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> The legend grows, right? You know. Well, that didn't that didn't include uh, you know a whole bunch of junk that was already in the trunk of the courtesy car. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, got this note from a, 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 a longtime contact at 800 Independence in Washington D.C. Dated August one. That's yesterday. Now. Uh, that would be the and, FAA for those not familiar with the street address. Right, our friendly aviation administration, and uh, it's uh, headlined, End of an Era, Chicago Center Provides Final Service for Oshkosh. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing. It's on the uh, on, on the uh, uh, what do you call this? The blog. The, uh, blog. Thanks a lot. There's still a few cobwebs up there. Uh, but essentially, Chicago Center, which has handled uh, a lot of the VFR traffic inbound to Oshkosh and and the IFR traffic inbound to Oshkosh will not be handling that airspace when Oshkosh comes around next July. Uh, Come February, there's going to be a change in the airspace allocation and the way the uh, FAA divvies it up among facilities, and that responsibility will transfer to uh, the folks at Milwaukee. Uh, And we know that Milwaukee's had its share of uh, of fly-throughs and overflights from people coming to the air show. But now they're going to get a whole lot of airspace that runs up into what was Chicago Center Space. Uh, we wish them well with that. Uh, I, I hope they paid close attention to the tapes from Chicago and Oshkosh and know just you know what's going to be coming at them next year. And to the folks in Chicago that have done it since Oshkosh has been in Oshkosh since EAA moved up there from Rockford, uh, hats off to you. Uh, generally 
really high marks for your professionalism and your patience. We were listening to you the day after the show ended, uh, the day after the NOCHAM uh, ended. Uh, you had your hands full with VFR departures out of Oshkosh, still some VFR arrivals, and a whole lot of folks looking for uh, flight following services that you really didn't have time for, and you were very patient in how you turned those folks down. Nice job. Sorry we won't see you next year. Yeah, I, I would echo Dave's comments. Um, Chicago has really done, over the years, consistently a really great job uh, of uh, handling the traffic to and from Oshkosh. Uh, and I remember years past coming out of there uh, um, during the show um, and you know trying to pick up an IFR. And the, the NOTAM would you know, say, you can't pick up an IFR until you're at this fix, and that fix is somewhere out over the, over the center of Lake Michigan. And and countless times I've been able to get the, the IFR pickup still over the mainland of Wisconsin, um, still in the climb, uh, much more, much earlier than, um, than the NOTAM uh, specified. One other point is, uh, as we were departing on Monday, <coughs> the uh, U-2 uh, was getting ready to prep, was prepping for departure. And we heard the, uh, the pilot of the U-2 on the ground control frequency, getting his clearance back to, uh, I think it was Beale Air Force Base. Um, he he was cleared to cruise at flight level 600, <laughs> 60,000 feet, and requested... And he said, request, no, I want to stay at 11, right? <laughs> right. Requested a, 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 an unrestricted climb. Yeah. And he wanted to circle over the airport. Uh-huh. And Oshkosh Ground uh, was passing all this along the center, and uh, he didn't get everything he wanted, uh, but he got enough of it, from what I understand, to keep him happy. Uh-huh. And that's just one more example of how well Chicago works, um, that airspace. And, and uh, for the record, we talk about Cincinnati, we talked about uh, St. Louis and Charlotte and some of these other uh, facilities, but uh, um, I've never, ever, in all my uh, uh, I won't say years, but certainly all the flights that I have made to and from and into and through the Chicago airspace never had a kind of a, the kind of a problem uh, or uh, um, circumlocution, if you will, that uh, some of these tracons try try to do. So, uh, uh, hats off to Chicago. Yeah. My hats off to Jeb for just being able to pronounce that word I after know, so really little coffee and so little uh, sleep. This early in the morning, huh? Yeah. Well, that's great. So uh, let's see now. A couple other quick uh, kind of closing things on, on AirVenture 2007. Um, we, uh, we were part of the uh, podcast of Palooza while we were out there. And I just oh, want to yeah. let everybody know that uh, the PilotCast guys have posted on their, uh, on their website the audio from uh, podcast of Palooza. So if you want to hear the whole gang of us, including the three of us, but uh, just a whole bunch of aviation podcasters hangar flying uh, uh, on microphone for a little while, go to uh, pilotcast.com. And, uh, and once again, it was terrific to meet all those folks and, uh, and uh, go out to dinner with really, them afterwards. Really nice group, and uh, our hats off to them in all their endeavors. I, yeah. that, was, that, that was quite a little accomplishment to pull that off with so many people on that stage. That's right, that's right. And then finally, I just wanted to, you know, so listening to the, Oh, two two things I wanted to mention. First of all, um, is uh, listening to the uh, episode forty while I was doing post production on it. Something uh, I realized something that I didn't realize when we were actually recording it. So each.
each of us was talking about the highlight of the week for us. And just to kind of give you the scent, the perspective of how my world of aviation is different than you two guys, all right? Jeb, your notable thing was you got a chance to go on a flight with the administrator of the FAA. Right. And Dave got to go for a ride in a blimp, all right? And I got to climb seven flights of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we all got higher. That's right, yeah. We all got off the ground. We all got off the ground. And, and that's and what counts. You, you know, you, you improved your fitness and conditioning along the way. That's right. Uh, it was a very cool thing to get up there and see the see the uh, the uh, grounds from from up on high. That was pretty cool. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, and maybe this will close out the things for Oshkosh. When, um, so I was there throughout the day on Monday. I was working on the podcast in the morning, um, and when I completed the podcast and, and pushed it up onto the net, I decided to go for one last walk through the uh, Air Venture grounds. And so I left. We were staying in the Super 8. I left the Super 8. I walked around the uh, the uh, uh, Eastern, or excuse me, the western end of the runway there, um, and I was walking across the North 40 campgrounds, which just for starters, that's an experience because it's basically empty. I mean, there are like five airplanes in the whole in the whole North 40 campground area there. As I'm walking across the grass, um, I see uh, approaching from the far end of the runway, the C-17, the Air Force C-17 cargo plane is on takeoff roll, and I go, oh, this is going to be cool. And so I get out my camera, and I'm watching it, and it's coming down, and I see it rotate. And it lifts off the runway, and uh, and it and it doesn't really climb out fast. It just kind of lifts up into ground effect and retracts the landing gear. And right after retracting the land ge- landing gear, still well within wingspan of the ground, it did a little wing rock for me. All right, and uh, saying goodbye to well, I think he was saying goodbye to me, but others think he was saying goodbye to Oshkosh. He did his little wing rock and then uh, climbed on, flew right on by me and uh, climbed out to the west from from uh, Whitman Field. It was a cool little moment, and I got a bunch of pictures. I put them on. Uh, How wonderful. Yeah. Jack, not not to burst your bubble, but that was actually wake turbulence from a departing Cessna 150. <laughs> That's what it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was a relatively new C-17 pilot, yeah. So, anyways. Well, I saw a sign that said, you know, fly for an airline with only 250 hours. So, uh uh, you know, other than sending a chill up my spine of a magnitude unexplainable and undocumentable by any instrumentation, uh, we know that the military takes greater pains and pleasure in training their people than 250 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, let's see now. Okay, one last little bit of, uh, this is not about Oshkosh specifically, but a little bit of self-congratulations here. Um, uh, I, I, I sort of every now and then take a peek into the iTunes Music Store in the podcast area to see how we measure up to some of the other podcasts. It's a little ego thing, you know? Do you and, use a uh, yardstick or a micrometer when you do uh, what, that? Man? Hey, listen, I'll tell you. It's, oh, I asked them's fighting words. Yeah, I know, really. All right, well, listen, here's the story. The story is that for the past couple of days, the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast has been the number two general aviation podcast in iTunes and uh, you know we've been holding around five for quite some time now and uh, it's uh, very gratifying uh, that uh, that we've kind of uh, risen a little bit more and, and you know all kidding aside thank you to all of you out there who uh, in the virtual hangar who listened to the podcast um, we got a chance to meet some of you who were out in, in Oshkosh and that was a big thrill and uh, really um, was you know we got some feedback from you and some uh, some some nice kudos uh, and we urge you to continue to send us feedback by email or by audio feedback, and uh, we enjoy getting that stuff. Who, who's the number one? Who's the number one podcast? Uh, the Pilotcast. 
Okay. Uh, Pilotcast has been the number one podcast for a long time now. They've been around for a long time. They do a great job, and uh, and they uh, continue to be the number one, the number one uh, general aviation podcast. There is a podcast that's more of a of a airlines sort of travel podcast. That if you if you search aviation podcast, it it shows as being the most popular, but it's not not a general aviation podcast. So uh, thank you all our listeners. We really appreciate that. Send us feedback, email or audio. Um, we would love to have you go into iTunes and add your feedback to our listing listing in iTunes. You can do that. And uh, uh, anyways, enough business here. What's going on in the, wor- in the world of general aviation, huh? It's getting back to normal for a yeah. little while. A little uh, bit. A little lot, bit. A lot, of, a lot of little events and uh, a lot of people taking advantage of what in my part of the country, at least, has been some uh, pretty moderate weather. Uh, we've had some little storms here and there, but by and large, the days have been sunny and navigable VFR and uh, moderate winds and moderate humidity. And uh, It's uncharacteristically comfortable for August out here. And uh, heard a lot of little airplanes around in the last few days, including some of those grand old round engines that we were hearing so much of last week. Yeah. Um. Let's see now. Well, one one sad thing that's in the general in the new, in aviation news recently is this uh, this this news chopper midair in right. in Phoenix. Is there anything we can add to that? I mean, it's just a tragic thing. How does that work? I mean, how do those guys stay separated? You know, when, you know, you've seen pictures. It's like a it's like a swarm of bees. You know, all these helicopters flying around. It's uh, yeah. Sometimes, you, especially in the LA market, you see uh, video of you know one of these slow speed car chases out there that that. Southern California is so famous for, and during the video you'll see a helicopter go between the camera uh, in in the heli- in one helicopter and the ground shot, um, just go right right right, right in the shot and ride it but right back out. Um, I, I'm I'm not a uh, electronic uh, uh, airborne journalist or anything like that. My understanding uh, when in a market where there's obviously more than one TV news gathering chopper. Is um, they have a discrete frequency they use mm-hmm. uh, to talk to each other. They know each other. That yeah, there's some competition, but it's generally friendly competition. And uh, they recognize everybody's everybody else's right to be there and, and uh, get the shot and move on. Um, they generally are talking to each other on a discrete frequency. I don't know which it is. It kind of depends on on the city and the, and the market, but. Right. Uh, uh, in this instance, no one knows exactly what happened. Uh, inevitably, you put um, um, two aircraft in the same uh, uh, airspace air at the same time, and chances are, eventually, they're going to swap paint. Yeah, uh, well, this, this, this is this obviously was much more tragic. You know, when you, there were essentially multiple choppers in the pattern or working that uh, that chase. Uh, several news helicopters plus law enforcement and uh, Jeb's right about the discrete frequency and and they do kind of work together recognize one another's rights but the collision avoidance system there is largely eyeball based I mean you can't put that many aircraft in that kind of proximity and expect a uh, an automated system uh, an electronic system to uh, actually give you real-time guidance on what you should be doing and obviously your screen would be saturated with targets all pretty much right on top of you anyway uh, and you know the fact that we don't hear about more of these indicates 
pretty positively, I think, that most of the time, most of these guys do a pretty good job of staying out of one another's way and staying safe. Uh, how this one happened, uh, beyond the fundamental, somebody lost sight of somebody and uh, the net result was tragic, uh, really don't, don't know more than that. Yeah. You've had, you've had helicopters uh, being used for electronic news gathering since the 70s. And this is the first time of which, in which I recall, uh, two of them have collided. Yeah. So I guess maybe, you know, like I always say, some smart people are going to look into this and try and figure out what can be done to improve safety in the future, but maybe we shouldn't, you know, take too much out of it in terms of panicking. Right. No, absolutely not. Absolutely. The, the fact that it coincidentally happened on the same day as uh, the tragic runway accident at Air Venture. Uh, I think probably accounted for why the Air Venture accident didn't dominate national news, uh, and the helicopter crash did. Yeah. A, a lot more fatalities and more craft, and uh, of course, live footage from several other helicopters didn't hurt. Yeah, although the news from the the uh, the Mustang crash at, at uh, Whitman definitely got out. A, a number of oh, yeah. my non non aviation friends, when I was when I got home and, and said hi, um, they all said to me, "Oh, it's so sad about that crash." You know, so you know the 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 general public definitely heard about. Um, our sad and our tragic incident back there, but uh, someone someone called me like a couple of days later, actually, and, and said, you know, gee, I didn't I didn't know there was a crash out there. Are you okay? Da 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 da. And I said, why are you calling now? And she, she said, well, I, I was watching this on Sunday morning news. Uh huh. And the crash was two days ago. Yeah. You know, and and it, apparently it was just it was I don't know if it was just getting picked up by or. Uh, it was just getting uh, reported in depth by the media on that Sunday morning. I think I think ultimately they didn't have much else to go with that day. Yeah. Well, that maybe. When did the video kind of go public? That's one thing that'll make the story. That's the story less. Uh, you know, I know Zoom Campbell had uh, his on ANN. Uh, I don't know when uh, uh, he got viral and, and when it was starting to air by uh, the. Uh, shall we say, the traditional news sources. Yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't paying any attention to the traditional media that week. Yeah. Moving on, um, let's see now, mm-hmm. while we're on the theme here. So there was a, we, we were, back before we left for Oshkosh, we were all comparing notes and sharing. There's a, a yet another YouTube video of this, uh, of this glider tow plane that got in a near midair and then descended by parachute. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an interesting piece of video. I uh, I think we yeah, we put it on the blog, so you might have seen it there, and if you haven't, you can go take a look. But uh, it, apparently he had a had a you know, home video camera mounted in the cockpit um, and for what should have been a routine flight. And then as he's flying along, um, suddenly we saw another aircraft in this dramatic climb, sort of up at a 45-degree angle from, from uh, right, right to left. Um, and... Uh, and then that sudden thing caused the uh, the, the plane we're, we're sort of on board uh, to maneuver suddenly. And according to the story, and this is where it kind of, I'm not sure if I, I don't know, I guess the story must be true, but it doesn't quite ring right to me. The story was that it was a glider tow plane, and he had already dropped his, his uh, glider, and uh, he was, and so, but he was still trailing the tow line, and that somehow... The sudden maneuver when he almost got in the midair caused the tow line to wrap around the prop, which of course killed the engine. But then, like sheer, you know, kind of, you know, quote unquote, dumb luck. All right, this aircraft has a uh, ballistic parachute, and so he pops the chute and kind of swings gently, gracefully down to a 
to a kind of bumpy landing. I don't know. Does this story make sense to you guys? It just seems odd to me. Well, clearly... Um, I mean, I can't quite picture how in that quick... I mean, it's really fast that this happens, right? The, the, the kind of the aircraft zooms through our field of view. The engine stops very quickly, and the chute pops very quickly, because you can kind of see the, the view kind of swaying, all right? This all happens very, very quickly. I have a hard time imagining um, how this happened that quickly. And I don't understand why he didn't just try and do a dead stick landing. I mean, why did he pop the chute, you know? Um, well, I I, uh, I never want to necessarily question a, a pilot for exercising his pilot and command authority and, and popping a chute or, or not popping a chute. Um, in in the video, and I, you know, looking at it from this perspective or looking at it from from this zip code, I should say, uh, I I can't vouch for the veracity of the video. I can't vouch for whether there was any splices or anything like that. Um, it does appear to me that the sequence, the time sequence, if you will, between the the uh, tow plane flashing through the uh, the video viewfinder, flashing through the uh, um, the video itself, and uh, the pulling of the parachute, the apparent pulling of the parachute by the pilot of the uh, the camera uh, the camera carrying aircraft, does seem rather short. Um, <clears throat> if if that had happened to me. Um, I think there would be have been several more seconds um, verifying the engine failure, verifying the cause of the engine failure, um, establishing a glide, and then deciding, you know, am I going to be able to land this thing somewhere, uh, or is it time to pull the chute? Um, Personally, I I would have probably ended up pulling the chute also if my airplane had been equipped with it, and if I decided that was the best course of action. Sure. Uh, Sure. Hang on a second. Just a second. <laughs> Sorry, I had to clear my throat. There you go. Um, that's what the mute button's for. That's what the mute button is for. Thank you. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the video, there's another curious thing about the video, though, is, is and I played it back a couple of times to try to see the actual impact, and, and you, you see the, the, the airplane, you see, well, the view of the airplane drifting down, you see the ground getting closer, and there's a gap uh, between the, the time where the airplane is very close to the ground and the time it comes to rest on the ground. You don't see the actual impact. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was any sleight of hand or anything like that, and it could well have been the shock of that impact uh, kind of tripped the, the video camera offline, if you will. Yep. Um, so there's there's some issues with the, uh, the, with the video itself, but um, it, it's a great... Uh, it, clearly, the aircraft was under canopy. Uh, on its way down, you don't you don't see an aircraft with uh, a fixed wing aircraft anyway, um, um, descending in that fashion, right? Um, unless there's something majorly foobarred with it. Uh, in this case, it was it was descending under canopy, and you could clearly verify that that was the case. So I, you know, I have to kind of uh, give the uh, the videographer here the the uh, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Well, and looking at the video two or three times, uh, like Jeb did, and thought that I recognized the type and I'm flown the type. I'm sorry? I thought it was a Blanca. Or a Satabi or something like that. Uh, I don't really think so. But What do you think uh, it was, Dave? I think it was one of our uh, amateur built uh, 51% kits that are so popular uh, here and, 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 and overseas. Two seats side by side. Uh-huh. Uh, 
looking at the the fuselage structure on it, uh, the way the doors open, it looked very familiar. But I'm I'm not I'm I'm not saying a brand or model because I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, and that aircraft is very very often sold with a parachute standard. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you can order it as a kit, and in Europe and some parts of uh, and, and Canada and other parts of the world where you can buy it ready to fly for years, like we're just in the last couple of years gotten to with the LSA, uh, the parachute is standard equipment. It's not an option. Uh, and the idea, you know, that the guy pulled it really quick, I agree with you. Uh, I, I'm having to try to put myself into his adrenaline and freak out factor, right? Uh, and recognize that that airplane darting through, darting through the shot that we saw on the video, he may not have seen. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's he true. He may not have seen. He may have been looking at, at, at other traffic. He may have been looking off at that sailplane that had, uh, sub- had had apparently just cut loose and was climbing and never saw the tow plane. So when he gets whacked with the rope, the tow rope, and the engine comes to a screeching blank halt, uh, I, I'm not sure that I wouldn't be going, holy hell, where's the parachute handle uh-huh. right now? Yeah, uh, And that is about the speed of deployment for the, the smaller, lighter parachutes that BRS makes for that if it's the aircraft, I think that's a that's a fairly light aircraft, eleven twelve hundred pound gross weight, and uh, uh, it comes out in about a second and a half, and in the right conditions, you can have full canopy in less than three seconds. Mm-hmm. So it happens really quickly. That's yeah. one of the points of it. You can have a, a, a catastrophic failure at very low altitude and at least get enough canopy out to slow you down to a survivable impact speed. Uh, but uh, d- definitely shows the, uh, the, the, the value of a, of a second chance system like that in circumstances where you may not be sure. And looking at some of the fields in the shot, I, free, I, I freeze, froze the video yeah. two or three times to look at the fields down there and some of them and depending on which way you know you were able to glide and at what angle some of those didn't look all that hospitable for uh, trying to dead stick landing no, so it could be uh, no, the, you know i'm not i'm not going to second guess the decision no i was going to i was going to say exactly that there are a lot of people who would uh second guess the pilot's decision in that instance and uh, Especially back when airframe parachutes were new and were uh, kind of uh, poo-pooed by uh, all those traditional pilots who uh, uh, might have 30 hours a year and and, uh, uh, brag about their prowess. Uh, I, for one, will not question the judgment of anyone who pulled a parachute because I wasn't there. Yeah, and And, and I guess I was, although it really wasn't my intention to be questioning the pilot. No, no, no. no. I I was more questioning the description we were given. I was wondering whether or not that was an accurate description of the circumstances. And I think we talked earlier in this this, uh, uh, segment about... uh, there are just some curiosities involving the quick, the short amount of time between the uh, parent collision and the um, uh, uh, deployment of the chute and uh, the uh, the gap, if you will, in the video when the airplane hits the ground. That should not be construed as uh, our questioning the pilot's judgment. Uh, the evidence uh, of, of uh, his survival, uh, a damaged airplane, but the airplane was already damaged, uh, he got out and walked away. Yeah. 
and, and right. right right there, there is evidence that the pilot made the correct decision. That's right. End of, end and, of, from, and from the end looks of discussion, of it, case closed. From the looks of it, the airplane wasn't going to take a huge amount of repair to be airworthy again. Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure how wrapping up a tow rope counts toward a prop strike. <laughs> Does that require I, a tear down? I would uh, want to tear down the engine yeah, myself. Yeah, sudden stop like that. I don't know. Yeah, any, any sudden stop, and, and the, that's what they call it, or or over revs, or anything else, is is grounds for tearing down the engine. Yeah. Well, well, it doesn't quite meet my uh, my uh, criteria for <laughs> off-field landing of the week. Um, but nevertheless, congratulations to that pilot for uh, getting on the ground safely. And uh, um, again, I, I was questioning the description of what they said was happening, what we were seeing. Not, I not think, I the, think we uh, got that. Not the smartness, not the uh, the uh, pilot skill. Uh, no, which absolutely Obviously not. worked. We're on the same page, Jack. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're all- what else? Uh, let's see now. Um, I, I don't know whether this is a story or not, but I came across an, an article uh, a couple weeks back. Again, I've been stashing these things away while we've been thinking about Oshkosh, um, about the possibility the government is, is, is toying with the idea of possibly turning SA back on on the GPS system. Have you guys seen anything about this story? I'm looking at the story you cite. Yeah. Uh, I have not heard uh, anything from any independent sources about this. Uh, kind of recapping here. Uh, selective availability is a feature or a bug, depending on your outlook, uh, built into um, GPS satellites and the, the, the signals that those satellites transmit. Um, selective availability basically degrades the quality of that signal. It was back in, I want to say, 96, 97, 98 time frame uh, when the federal government um, decided, uh, for reasons not entirely clear, uh, but to great acclaim, to turn off selective ability. Right. Uh, right away, there was uh, increased accuracy for all users of GPS, not just aviation users. And today, GPS has become such such a ubiquitous technology. We see it in uh, um, in ads for uh, um, cars and uh, uh, so many other uh, applications. Whether it's hikers, whether it's aviation, whether it's uh, uh, some schmuck, uh, one of the one of the uh, ads wanting to marry his GPS, um, turning off uh, uh, selective uh, availability was definitely one of the things that helped boost GPS technology to uh, um, to what it is today. Right. Very ubiquitous. Yeah. Turning it back on would, uh, I think, be a, a politically a very dumb thing. And, and B, uh, would definitely create some problems for all those users around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Does, uh, now, does ADSB use GPS? It oh, does. Yeah, it does. absolutely. Okay. And it depends on that, on that uh, uh, better than 10-meter accuracy and, and wide area augmentation system accuracy uh, to uh, provide accurate data to air traffic control and other aircraft on where you are when you're using an ADSB equipped aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so degrading it to, you know, the hundred hundred meter level uh, as it used to be, while it wouldn't make a huge uh, difference in the in route system, would make a tremendous difference in the uh, approach environment and in the terminal area where you've Absolutely. got uh, where you've got uh, you know a, a larger saturation of aircraft maneuvering around the same airport or toward and, fr- and and from the airport at the same time uh and this isn't just aviation folks uh 
you know, hikers and surveyors, uh, search and rescue people, even the even the OnStar system you see advertised on TV for GM products, all depend on the current level of accuracy to provide the degree of service uh, and the quality of service that they provide today. Uh, it's interesting to me that this is another reversal by one administration of another administration's attempt to better serve the public. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm prepared to I'm prepared to say now that this is a, not a correct story. I, I think you, you make a lot of compelling points. It would be just crazy to turn SA back on. It, well, it really would be. Yeah. It, it would be, but we've we've seen uh, um, how how should I put this? We've seen the gov- federal government in various guises do crazy things here recently. Yeah, but we just uh, heard the administrator say they're about to make a huge commitment into ADSB. Why would they? It just doesn't make sense. I, I yeah. Well, since when did one hand of the federal government know or care what the other hand was doing? Perhaps that's true. Perhaps uh, that's true. Wouldn't be wouldn't be the first time uh, you know that they uh, told us what great things they were going to do for us on one hand, while on the other hand, and as, as out of sight as possible, we're doing exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's a PR message garnered to make people feel good, and the other is an operational message that says we're still in control and we'll do whatever the hell we want. Yeah. Oh, here I go again. Now, speaking of ADSB, this was something I—I I know it was on my list last week, um, but I think we didn't get to it. Um, the administrator announced that uh, they were going to, as I understand the story, and you guys maybe can clarify it, that they were going to put out a contract to install the system nationwide, right? I love the way you say "put out a contract." I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> Where's Tony Soprano when you really need him? <laughs> They're going to put out a contract on podcasters. That uh, wasn't what I meant. I they, know. No, they, they, they've been hip crosses. They've been working on. I'm sorry. Isn't what's what's the slang? What is it? Let a contract or put out a contract. That's the slang. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. That's what she said, right? Award. Uh, actually, the way said. that you put it to stay out of trouble is they're they're working. Uh, they're about to award a contract. There you go. To do uh, uh, the. Uh, backbone installation of ADSB, which is going to be about 200 ground stations that uh, cover the United States. Uh, we already have some coverage along the East Coast. There's already some coverage in the Ohio River Valley, Oregon, and I believe Wisconsin as state entities are moving ahead with their own ADSB ground station installations as we speak. Uh, there was another contract awarded recently to uh, 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 do a saturation installation in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, which includes using some of the oil platforms offshore uh, from the United States continental uh, shoreline to mount some of these, because obviously uh, floating them in the water or putting them on the bottom may not be the best thing for signal quality. Uh, ADSB is going to be the backbone of what we're going to have in the future. That seems pretty clear, uh, even though work on the next gen is still not complete on its own so that there's three companies bidding for that i'm not going to say all the names because i'll forget one and i know how their feelings get hurt when we leave them out so you know this through your sources or they have announced who the candidates are oh it's it's been public knowledge for uh, uh, months i did a story about it for one of my clients uh, i don't know two three months ago uh-huh. and uh is was looking at one of them I believe so. Yeah, okay. I believe so also. And I believe yeah, Raytheon is My money's on Lockmart. And ISNS, I believe, is the third one. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll have to take Marker and, and maybe come back to the, the details of this uh, in a subsequent episode. Right. 
um, the, the administrator also announced, and, and I don't, it wasn't really uh, um, secret knowledge at the time, she announced that by the end of August, the, NP, <coughs> the, excuse me, the FAA will uh, release a notice of proposed rulemaking regarding ADSB, how it would be implemented, in which airspace it would be required initially, time frames, etc. Um, the, you still holding the, to the end of August on that? I, that's that's what I've been told. That's what I've seen in, in, from a variety of sources. I, I want to say August 30, uh, but uh, that's actually the date um, that the uh, Washington Aiders will be reduced in size. So uh, I, I could be uh, uh, confusing the two dates. It might be the 28th. Punchline is right. the end of August. Right. Yeah, the, the August September time frame is what uh, I was told as far back as far back as last October. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and the uh, the the direction this was leaning when last I was able to converse with some of my friends at 800 Independence was the uh, the initial implementation will be at Class B airspaces around 2012. Now that was, you know, this is all subject to the public response and the FAA's final rulemaking because this is an NPRM, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. It means they're coming out and saying, this is what we want to do. What do you all think? Mm -hmm. And then we all get to chime in with what we all think. Uh, And on one as big and far-reaching as this one's going to be, uh, you can expect uh, all the heavy hitters to sit back, study, and write pretty detailed technical responses to to go with what will also be some hell yes and hell no simplicity from the public. Right. Here's here's my question for all that though. I mean, and they clearly are from from all the things that everybody has seen, or certainly Dave and I have seen. They are clearly looking at Class Bravo airspace as being the first um, airspace in which ADSB will be required. Um, what do the the major airlines have to say about that? Are they willing to bite the bullet and go back and retrofit their existing aircraft? Are they planning on uh, uh, revamping all of their fleet airframes so that uh, um, they don't have to to retrofit. That ADSB will already be installed when they take delivery of a new airplane. How, what are the What do the major carriers have to say about any of this? And since they're the ones who uh, uh, primarily use uh, Class B airspace, well, uh, based solely on the unscientific observation of past proportionality between the cost of GA boxes and the cost of airline boxes, with what the current generation of ADS-B airborne transceivers cost for GA aircraft, uh, and given the, the, the uh, prevalence of GPS and multifunction displays and, and data link channels connecting all the equipment in modern airliners, uh, this one looks to me like it would be a relatively uh, low-cost retrofit for whatever part of the airline fleet had to be retrofitted and presuming the rule comes out in a reasonable amount of time they'd probably have about three to four years to do it which means all their airplanes would be in for at least uh, two or three C and D checks where that stuff could be done Uh, but the utility that they're going to get out of it uh, is already is being demonstrated in the Ohio River Valley by United Parcel Service. Uh, UPS has been in on the Ohio River Valley test with the FAA for a number of years. Uh, They are already using software that uses ADSB uh, 
to help ma them manage the flow of their airborne fleet in and out of their air hub at Louisville International Airport in Kentucky. Uh, I mean, we're talking about some fine tuning here where the software uses the ADSB data to tell aircraft on approach whether they need to speed up or slow down a few knots mm -hmm. to maintain well, the kind of spacing to get the maximum uh, saturation of arrivals, far higher arrival rates than they could get on a rate based using a radar-based environment, uh, and it works the same way going out. Uh, it saves yeah. them time, saves them fuel, anything that saves them time and fuel saves them big money. Here's where I have my real head-scratching uh, situation, and that involves, you know, looking at ADSB, <clears throat> looking at what it does, um, looking at um, the system we currently have, whether it's ground-based, air, uh, airborne-based, or a combination of the two. There is nothing that ADSB does now that we don't already have in the air traffic control system today. Now. ADSB does it standalone. They, it does it uh, totally from an airborne equipment uh, uh, standpoint. There is uh, little to no need when ADSB is all up and running uh, to have contact with a controller. In fact, a lot of the uh, uh, ADSB technology is designed to allow airborne aircraft to self-separate. In other words, stuff self-sequence. Um, ensure separation from each other, and and how all these uh, how all this capability will be, uh, uh, so we say, proceduralized is is a, a big question in my mind. But the punchline is we already have all this capability, given um, the existing ground-based radar system, given the controllers who who sit at their scopes and uh, give us speed adjustments and give us heading adjustments to. Uh, um, properly sequence aircraft uh, arriving and departing various airports. Um, in addition, the runway acceptance rates ain't going to change. You can still only put five pounds of airplane onto in, into a five-pound bag of runway. Well, now, you, um, now you're moving into a, a, a different area. Uh, well, uh, maybe, complimentary, maybe. complimentary agreed. You, you can't have one without the other. Right. Maybe, maybe not. My, my concern is, yeah, they will be able to shave and, you know, pick a number. I, I, I don't know what the numbers are. I've asked the question, and, and the answer is we don't know yet. Um, let's say the, the standard separation in a given piece of airspace for a given aircraft is five miles and 1,000 feet. Um, the FAA right now can't say. Will they be able to shave that separation to... Three, three miles and 750 feet uh, or 500 feet or, or whatever, and they can't quantify, or at least they haven't been able to quantify to me, uh, how a using ADSB in lieu of the current system will help compress more traffic into the same amount of airspace. Well, you could have said um, the same thing about bringing Loran or GPS in. I mean, uh, VORs and ground-based radar and, and uh, air traffic control links gave us everything that we needed and, and essentially the same as what we've got now. But with GPS on board, we're able to do it with more accuracy. We're even able to help controllers in terms of our position reporting sometimes by saying, I'm right at this fix, when their radar doesn't show, it there, show us there yet. Uh, where I might part ways with you on this is uh, 
it, it, it does so much of this so much better with so much more accuracy and such greater frequency of reporting that those distances will shrink. They know they will shrink. The fact that they can't quantify it, I think, is partly bad marketing on their part and, uh, and, and paranoia about saying something that they're going to get chastised for. Um, because part of runway acceptance rate, it, runway acceptance rate is not solely uh, concrete-based. It's also related uh, in part to how frequently the radar sweeps and how accurate the radar is when you're in the uh, in, in the final approach environment. Well, and in, if you in get a, greater updates and greater accuracy, right. then you can theoretically have a little higher runway acceptance rate uh, as long as the aircraft can clear the runway in time. Right, and 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 when when I was on that flight last week, that uh, with with Administrator Blakey, uh, that that topic came up, and the, the the answer is, in in VFR conditions, ADSB's uh, uh, reduction or I'm sorry, increase of the runway acceptance rate is not so much. Right. The the the, the in uh, bad weather. It's in huge. bad weather. It's huge, and and the examples include, of course, simultaneous uh, ILS approaches to parallel runways. Where existing technology means uh, the separation values have to be increased uh, because of, of sweep rates, uh, uh, because of a variety of variables that uh, are way over my head. Uh, ADSB supposedly will reduce those separation uh, standards and allow greater acceptance rates. And yes, I can get behind that. Um, but in a, on a VFR day, where everybody sees everybody else, and ATC is putting them down one right after the other, the moment one taxis off at the end of the runway, another one touches down on the opposite end, um, that's the kind of acceptance rate I'm talking about, and we're not going to see any material increase in that because it's not physically possible. Well, and great VFR weather is not where we predominantly have our great massive traffic jams and meltdowns in airline flow. I don't and I'll admit, this is going to be a bigger boon for the airlines in a lot of ways than it is for GA, uh, except for newer aircraft that come you know, without the benefit of older technology where people won't know what they're missing out on. I think it is going to be a boon in terms of helping people learn and understand and maintain. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's not going to be a revolution. It's going to be an evolution. Uh, for there to be all the potential benefits that uh, are available with an advance in technology like this, uh, you know, somebody's got to be working on the runway equation as well as the airspace equation. As a technology guy, I find this whole thing very fascinating, and uh, and I like it. But am I going to want to or need to install this equipment in my Cessna 152? It depends. Where do you want to fly? When do you want to fly there? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and how far out in the future are you planning on flying? Right. Initially, as, as the FAA has, has kind of signaled here, it will be required for access to uh, Class Bravo airspace. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean accessing all, just entering Class Bravo airspace? Or does that mean accessing the primary Class B airport? Does that mean uh, transiting the airspace? Does that mean landing at any uh, airport within the class Bravo or just being under the tiers? There's no answer to those questions. We've seen over the years different um, uh, levels of implementation, shall we say, of certain technologies um, depending on uh, uh, 
how it's uh, uh, depending on the technology, depending on the on the actual need, the perceived need, and the perceived benefits. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm not a fan of of ADSB as as uh, the two of you and our listeners might uh, uh, might have picked up. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I had remain, no idea. <laughs> I, I, I remain skeptical. Um, anything that's uh, thrust upon me by uh, uh, the federal government uh, is automatically suspect because I, I, I uh, uh, question their motivations. And in this case, I think uh, the FAA is simply trying to offload its cost and its responsibilities and its controller workload onto um, airborne aircraft and, and reduce its cost by increasing the, the aircraft operator's cost. Well, here, but, you know, hey, you know, I, I've been wrong before. I think it was 1973. Yeah. Dave, wrap, uh, wrap it up for us for today. There's uh, things far beyond this that we haven't talked about, such as the uh, eventual end of any need for the ground-based radar stations that are so expensive both to buy and to operate and, to main, and, and, and you know, operate as in maintain. Uh, those will essentially be redundant and start going away. Uh, that should theoretically save us a lot of money because that's more expensive technology to buy and maintain than replacement technology. True, there is some offloading here to us, but at the same time, we benefit from some of that offloading and greater situ- situational awareness of other traffic around us uh, and and greater confidence that ATC can see us throughout the environment. Uh, you know, anytime I fly out here in airspace where below a certain altitude, I'm not on radar coverage, it increases my uh, my head swiveling component almost to uh, uh, spatial disorientation levels because mm-hmm. uh, we got you know, crop dusters and pipeline pilots and cattle herders and all this flying below radar coverage, too, and not always able to communicate. So there's a lot to this. Uh, I share Jeb's skepticism uh, on certain levels where the federal government is concerned. I'm not interested in the idea that I don't like the idea that they're going to pawn off operation of the system to private industry for profit. Right. Uh, I think there are some functions that necessarily and naturally fall at, within the federal government's purview and should stay within the federal government's purview. Uh, printing money, making war, which we seem to do so well, uh, is even being offloaded to subcontractors these days. Well, you know, enough is enough, guys. Everything doesn't have to be for a bloody profit. Some should just be for public service uh, because we pay taxes for it. Uh, the benefits, you know, in 20 years, we'll be looking back at the old system saying, man, how did we ever survive under that old way? And this debate will be over. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to return to this one in the future. Reaching, Maybe once or twice. We're, reach, we're reaching the uh, end of our allotted time here. Oh, uh, no. Oh, no. Any, uh, any shout-outs before we finish up? I've got a couple. You guys got any? One thing I wanted to call attention to, just an announcement that happened in the last couple of days, just kind of mark your calendars, that they've decided to shorten Sun and Fun next spring. Um, they've, uh, they've decided to do without the final day, which I believe was a Monday, or was it a Sunday? Now I'm confused. Um, it was a Monday. It was a Monday. Generally called Exhibitor Bonding Day. Yeah, that's yes, because right. it was because the exhibitors were the only ones still present, right? And uh, so they've decided to cancel that final day, and uh, Sun and Fun will end on Sunday. Uh, um, we're looking forward to going back. It's kind of way out in the future, but uh, we had a lot of fun there with the podcast uh, last spring, and uh, and we met with some of our Sun and Fun friends while we were out in Oshkosh, and uh, started to hatch some interesting plans. And we'll come back to that later on. 
Also, um, I got email uh, recently and, and uh, as a result uh, was introduced to a new aviation podcast that I wanted to give a little quick shout out to. It's called The Private Pilot and it's produced by a guy named Martin L. I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to use his last name. He only uses his last initial on his website. So, uh, um, But Martin L, uh, he's done about six episodes since January, but he's done one as recently as a couple weeks back. And uh, if you're interested in checking out yet another aviation podcast, this one is at theprivatepilot.blogspot.com. Calm. You guys got anything? First Saturday of the month is in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are giving you money, aren't they, Dave? They're giving you money or, or free pancakes. Or I haven't something. even. I haven't been down there in months. Yeah, uh, lack okay. of an airplane, uh, poor scheduling, other things, uh, and you know, all things considered, it's looking like it could be a great weekend. For those uh, of, for, for our new listeners, say the name. <laughs> Ponca City, Oklahoma, the Ponca City Boosters Club has a monthly first fly, first Saturday of the month fly-in breakfast, rain or shine. They do have an ILS. Papa November Charlie is the designator. Uh, it's the best fly-in breakfast I've ever had, and I've had a few. Okay, uh, uh, I've, I've got one one quick shout out, which is pretty, you know long overdue in a lot of different ways, and that's to the to the uh, Potomac uh, Terminal Radar Approach Control here in the Washington D.C. area. Um, they were saddled with this Washington Aidas uh, uh, way back in '03, I believe it was, almost overnight for no good reason. Um, they've they've done just a miraculous job keeping everything moving and keeping people from swapping paint uh, under just <clears throat> uh, horrendous circumstances. Sometimes um, now that uh, um, it's the the Aidas is going to be reduced uh, uh, later this month. Uh, now that um, there's light at the end of the tunnel, um, uh, they, they deserve a, a great deal of the credit for helping make this thing work. Uh, uh, Absolutely, bastard child that it, that it is and, and was. Uh, and and the flip side of which is, I just got great service the other night, smoking in uh, from the west, uh, smoking in from Wichita, and uh, uh, just just want to kind of share that with our listeners and. Uh, publicly thank Potomac for all their good service over the years. We've had our differences uh, and we will continue to have our differences but on the whole they do a magnificent job. Great. And uh, same thing for the uh, in case we didn't mention, hats off to all the FAA uh, yeah. controllers that were imported into the Oshkosh Tower and uh, and worked all the positions up there. Uh, marvelous job handling a unbelievable amount of traffic in a short period of time uh that won't change next year we're glad of it yep yep well there we go uh jeb burnside you can learn more about jeb and his work at uh, jebburnside.com also uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com dave is at uh, davehigdon.com i am at uh, jackhodgson.com or at aroundthefield.net and you can visit all of us at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com, where you can get the show notes and uh, read the blog and send us feedback. So See us in action in Phil Weston's photograph. That's right. That's right. Uh, so thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you all again next time. TTF. Bye-bye. <laughs>